0: Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is
1: rampant. Total fucking bullshit. This b- b- bullshit. makes
0: no fucking sense. I mean, this is bullshit. Fuck. B- b- bullshit. is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window.
2: back to the bullshit filter The War on Drugs episode 3.23 are you uh
3: how you, you how you survived Hurricane Florence uh, uh, there Papa I'm doing okay I mean we've got some wind some rain some clouds so but overall it's it's um, God has has blessed me and it's it's only grazing us. However, everything here, the ground is so saturated that it wouldn't take much for a tree to fall, for power to go out, the Internet to go out, for a tree to fall on me. So um, there's still a little element of danger, and that just that just spices everything up for me. Just knowing that I could die live on this show, it's pretty exciting.
2: Is it uh, true that there are sharks in the hurricane now? I saw that on the news.
3: Yes, and that's that's based on science. Uh, science fiction uh, movies um, So, but it is real so if you do get sucked up make sure you bring your Batman repell- shark repellent spray, everything will be okay
2: On the other hand I heard President Trump said that the uh, hurricane is fake news mm, and the Democrats invented it to make him look bad yeah, yeah. truth to that uh, Ray on the bullshit meter how do you rank that one?
3: Um, I'm sure they did what they needed to do by blessing the rains in Africa to make it come our way. The hurricane is real, but it is Democrat-generated. So partial truth on that one. (laughs) All right. Well, um, last
2: time when we ended the uh, bullshit filter last week – we um, got up to the governor of Texas, Buford T. <coughs> Justice, uh, aka Willie Clements, uh, the first Republican governor in 105 years in Texas, launched his yeah. war on drugs, yeah. and he uh, appointed the richest businessman in Texas at the time, uh, Ross Perot, I-E the
3: most qualified
2: to uh, <laughs> to lead it. Um, you told me uh, off air you had a story about Willie Clements that you wanted yeah. to share with the just peeps. an
3: addendum just to show how self serving all politics are and you should never believe anything you hear. So like you said last time last week he was the first Republican elected since Reconstruction I think 120 years something like that and um, he is going to want to run again as governor but obviously it's it's an anomaly that he has been elected he's a Republican he's been elected so he's got to think of some way to get in good while he is governor. And so a part of this war on drugs has absolutely nothing to do with the welfare of the people of Texas, the great people of Texas. Um, he, he, he basically puts this together so he can use it to ingratiate himself to all different levels of government within Texas. So, so he's talking to his aide, and it says, uh, Gover- Governor Clemens' administration implemented a strategy aimed at building a political coalition that could threaten democratic dominance by focusing on crime and punishment. Clement's general counsel told the governor, "I see no downside to you politically in backing these law enforcement issues. That will gain you the respect and appreciation of almost everyone connected with law enforcement throughout the state, literally touching every local city council, commissioners' court, district uh, just district attorney's court office, all principally held by the Democrats. So I'm going to do this because everybody else is doing it. We can spend a lot of money. We can get a lot of power. It makes the." please happy. But this is also self-serving for me because everybody will know who all this, where all this money came from, from me. And so when I run for re-election, hopefully they'll remember that. So good and bad, he doesn't get elected again, but after, after someone else comes in, he is then elected in the next term. So it does pay off for him. He's one of the few people who in Texas, who's actually been elected more than once governor. So again, it was all about taking care of him and in a in a delayed way, it does work, and this is all self serving for him.
1: Mm.
2: Self serving politicians. Who would have thought?
3: Yes, I'm shocked.
2: I got a for, for the kids out there who are too young to remember Ross Perot. I got a clip here from him. This is in 1992 in a presidential debate. Uh, it's him, Bill Clinton, and George H. W. Bush. But here's just a couple of minutes of Ross Perot so you get to hear a little bit about what a crazy character this guy is and was, he's still around, I believe.
4: The candidates will have an opportunity to make a closing statement. So, President Bush, I think you said it earlier, let's get it on. Let's go. (laughs) And I think the first question is over here.
1: Yes, I'd like to direct my
3: question
0: to Mr Perot. Uh, What will you do as president to open foreign markets to fair competition from American business and to stop unfair competition here at
3: home from foreign countries so that we can bring jobs back to the United States?
1: That's right at the top of my agenda. We've shipped millions of jobs overseas, and uh, we have a strange situation because we have— a process in Washington where after you've served for a while, you cash in, become a foreign lobbyist, make $30,000 a month, then take a leave, work on presidential campaigns, make sure you got good contacts, and then go back out. Now, if you just want to get down to brass tacks, first thing you ought to do is get all these folks who've got these one-way trade agreements that we've negotiated over the years, and say, fellas, we'll take the same deal we gave you. And they'll gridlock right at that point, because... For example, we've got international competitors who simply could not unload their cars off the ships if they had to comply. You see, if it was a two-way street, just couldn't do it. We have got to stop sending jobs overseas. To those of you in the audience who are business people, pretty simple, if you're paying $12, $13, $14 an hour for factory workers, And you can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for labor, hire a young 25, Let's assume you've been in business for a long time, you've got a mature workforce. Pay a dollar an hour for your labor, have no health care, that's the most expensive single element, making a car, have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, and no retirement, and you don't care about anything but making money, there will be a giant sucking sound going south. So we, if, if the people send me to Washington, the first thing I'll do is study that 2,000-page agreement and make sure it's a two-way street. I, one last point here. I've called, I decided I was dumb and didn't understand it, so I called the who's who of the folks who've been around it. And I said, why won't everybody go south? They said, we'll be disruptive. I said, for how long? I finally got them up for 12 to 15 years. And I said, well, how does it stop being disruptive? And that is when their jobs come up from a dollar an hour to $6 an hour and ours go down to $6 an hour, then it's leveled again. But in the meantime, you've wrecked the country with these kinds of deals.
2: So uh, any of that sound familiar?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I guess
3: Trump was Trump just decided mm-hmm. to come in and wage war against our greatest enemy, Canada, uh, through trade, through tariffs and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's all about, um, I guess, going after the foreign countries and uh, raising tariffs. And even though all, all the other Republicans hate it, Trump knows best. He knows what he's doing. And like you said, uh, Perot paved the way for someone like Trump.
2: Yeah, that's pretty much a Trump campaign speech yeah, just delivered without the accent. a l- little bit more eloquently.
3: Right.
2: Mm, mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so, as we said last time, uh, Willie Clements, the Texas governor, decided to make Ross Perot the head of his war on drugs. Didn't tell <laughs> Ross Perot, who was mightily pissed, <laughs> but then the media started running around saying, oh, Perot's going to suck at yes. this job. And he was like, oh, yeah, you watch, boy. <laughs> and... He ended up t- taking it seriously. He ended up putting on a road show, yeah. throughout Texas, holding you know like town meetings and uh, PTA meetings, yeah. Lions Club lunches, ladies auxiliary teas, wow. uh, and I have no idea what a lady's auxiliary uh, tea is. I know what an auxiliary is in the army. Are these like female armies that are uh, supporting the army? I uh Auxiliary
3: troops? Know. I know what an auxiliary it is, and I know, I know, I know what an auxiliary is, and I know what tea is. But when you put the two together, I just think it's the precursor to an orgy. But, again, I'm not from Texas. I don't know.
2: According to Merriam-Webster, uh, an organisa- a ladies' auxiliary, is an organization of women that is auxiliary, <laughs> usually to a men's fraternal uh, or social organization. Second classists. So you, uh, yeah, yeah, the men have an, a, an organization, it's called a strip and the women club. just sort of <laughs> they make tea for the men for when they're finished. Get their slippers and That's cigars right. ready, I, I like guess. That. Anywhere he could get in front of concerned parents, Ross Perot would go and give a big uh, dog and pony show to warn them about the horrors of marijuana.
3: Now, I thought it was interesting that he um, he pulled together a team, which we'll go into some of these people later, but Ross Pro not only put on this dog and pony show, he paid for the whole thing out of his pocket, which I think the governor was expecting him to do. So he would go on first, and he would talk about um, making all these laws against uh, drugs and uh, drug possession a lot tougher, and then a man named Carlton Turner, who we're going to get into, would go on there. And This guy's actually got a master's degree, he knows more about the fundamentals of marijuana than anybody else and he would go on there with a straight face and talk about all the horrors of of a a pot of marijuana use and then there's a lady um uh, I don't know how to say her name, Shukard, Shukard. I'm not sure how to say her name, but I guess she was a concerned parent from I think maybe Atlanta and she would um she would talk to them about how to organize parents, how to uh, get um how to attack the commercialized teenage drug culture. And like you said, it would be boom, 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 they had this one, two, three hit. And so people would get a message, they would get scared through um through Carlton and then they would realize and then they would be told how to go about attacking this. Through through the activist, the young lady. So again, this was a very effective thing. They're all over Texas. Ross Perot is well known, and like you said earlier, he he gets thousands of people, a lot of of mothers, uh, to line up behind him. And when you have mothers on your side, that is a force of nature in itself.
1: How's about coming back to my room for a little boom boom You keep
0: coming to me
3: Let me guess, that was Culture Club on Acid.
2: Paul Lukakis. Yes. Uh, boom, boom. <laughs> let's go back to my room. Should, 1986.
3: Shouldn't it be boom, boom. Let's go back to my room, room? I mean, I'm not. I Just technically. Uh,
2: speak. Little known fact about Paul Lukakis. Yeah. Um, Little known fact, there, One of the. Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, homosexuals no. uh, in 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 uh, um, the American society there right um, according to Wikipedia uh, he uh, worked as a male prostitute sure. in West Hollywood between 1994 and 1997 yeah. which is uh, you know eight Ten years after his number one Aww. hit single "Boom Boom Boom," let's go back to my room. Let let that be a warning <laughs> to the kids out there. Invest. Um, you get a
3: one-hit wonder. And
2: uh, in an interview uh, with POS magazine, he uh, admitted to uh, a being uh, positive uh, HIV positive and deliberately exposing his johns Aww. to HIV. Oh, Having unprotected sex with his male clients when working as a prostitute. Let so, that be a lesson uh, to you as well. Uh, that's a bit of a dick, dick move. Bit of a dick move there, uh, Mister Boom Boom <laughs> Boom Boom <La> Uh <sighs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yes, the the Boom 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 Roadshow. <laughs> they called it. Um, <laughs> I think he was part of the roadshow.
3: He, he warmed up the crowds.
2: Oh, did he? Yeah, <laughs> afterwards, yeah, the men in the crowds. Yeah. Beers, steers and queers down in Texas, no, as they say. they're get us killed. They're um, hmm. going you <laughs> killed, maybe. Uh, long, they, they can't get here. you got to go over an ocean. You can't take a uh, gun on a plane. Um, Carlton Lee e. Turner, you mentioned. Yeah. So he yeah. was one of the guys on the road show. Now, he... Uh, was a scientist who had been the director of the federal government's Marijuana Project. Wow. Now, I didn't know the federal government had a Marijuana Project. I got excited about (laughs) it when I heard about it. But uh, apparently what they would do is they would grow cannabis sativa plants, process the plant material into marijuana, smoke a lot of it to make sure that it worked this and then a- they would supply the rest of it supply the rest of it as standard research marijuana to researchers around the world ah. so they could research it write extensive scientific reports <laughs> which governments around the world could then put in the shredder and say yeah we don't we don't want to know it's that Jesus that's yeah. That doesn't fit the agenda. Right Now, Carlton E. Turner uh, was and is still to this very day, mm. from what I can tell, extremely anti-marijuana. But in 2016, yes. he wrote an article for the American Center for Democracy... Right off the bat, when I hear about an organization called the American Center for Do- Democracy, I automatically assume <laughs> right. it's a fascist, yes. extreme right-wing right wing organization. You might as well just call yourselves American just call yourself the American fascists, yeah. if that's what you're gonna call Institute. yourself. Like you're not fooling anyone right. with a name like that. Yeah. Anyway, he wrote an article in 2016, Mr. Turner, that says the fact is that marijuana is a dirty drug with so many different side effects that it will never pass the required safety and efficacy testing for medicine. Marijuana can contain over 700 individual chemicals, and when smoked, the number of chemicals expands to the thousands. The smoke contains 50% to 70% more cancer-causing compounds than tobacco, which was a huge surprise uh, to Donald Tashkin, um, of the University of California, who we've mentioned before, he's the pulmonologist who has studied marijuana for thirty years, right. and uh, today says, "Yeah, it's it's fine. It's <laughs> doesn't <laughs> it's, it's not bad." I'm, quite frankly, I was surprised. He said, I, "We we expected it when we did our studies that it would be really bad, and it's God. not at all." So, in fact, it's probably good for you. So, uh, but, anyway, yeah. so yeah, Carlton E. Turner is uh, full of horseshit. Right,
3: But here's what I don't get. Um, This guy, he was born in Alabama in 1940. He's got a master's and a doctoral degrees in organic chemistry. He at the time that we're talking about uh, late 1970s or whatever, he's one of the leading experts of this nation on the botany and pharmacology of marijuana. So this guy knows and and we've been through this on uh, 23 different shows already about about. The effects of marijuana, and even if it was harmful to some degree, I imagine now in 2018, they could they could manipulate marijuana a lot to make it safer if they needed to. But the point is, this guy is going to go on, and he is going to make outrageous claims. But because he is a doctor and because he has a degree and all this stuff, he's going to be believed, even though we know now that what he is saying now and what he's going to say in the future is complete bullshit, but um, I, I don't know if it was just a—I don't know if it was a religious cause for him, or if it was a cultural war for him. But this guy is going to take all the knowledge that he has, and like everybody else, chuck it out the window.
2: Well, I mean, I, on one hand, I think he's one of the few people that we've seen get involved in um, setting policy that, on paper, looks good. The director of the Marijuana Project—he yeah. obviously did know a lot about the uh, chemical nature of marijuana, Mm -hmm. how he ended up taking the complete opposite position to every other scientific report we've talked about um, over the course of this series. I I really don't know. I don't understand. I I did try and dig into what was like his motivation, what his agenda was. Yeah. Didn't really come up with anything. Um, He came from Mississippi. So that's all I could come up with. He's from Mississippi. Um, yeah. I you know I, I think that basically means he's a dumb redneck, right? Isn't that what you tell me no, about everyone from Mississippi? No, they're dumb you're rednecks. Trying to get
3: me shot before the sharks and the hurricane get me. No, no. But, but I, the only thing I could get was that this for him was a cultural war, and I think he decided that the um, end justified the means, and so he was willing to say whatever. But the fact that he's still saying it in twenty sixteen. Completely confounds me I have no idea Why he's saying this When he knows Better than we do That it's not As dangerous As he's saying That it is Or was Back in 1970 Or 79 Excuse me
2: Mmm Mmm Yeah I don't know man Anyway So he was He was on the road show And obviously Carried a lot of credibility Yeah, right. uh, He's walking around He's He's got He's got the skills To pay the bills um, now, Perot didn't stop with uh, the roadshow, so he's doing the roadshows to get the mums and dads on board, yeah. just terrorise the mums and dads, make them absolutely terrified that their kids are going to smoke marijuana and turn into rapists and murderers. Yeah. Um, uh, and and going to eat all the breakfast <laughs> cereal in the house while they're watching <laughs> cartoons and laughing their asses off. Now, Perot also had what? his corporate lawyer write anti-drug legislation to submit to uh, the legislative bodies in Texas. Um, He was arguing for mandatory life sentences without parole for selling pot to a minor, um, complicated reporting requirements for pharmacists, expanded wiretap and search authority for police and a lot more. Now, when they first presented this legislation to the Texas uh, lawmakers, mm-hmm. they they didn't bite. Texas, as you know, I think you mentioned it last time, um, had previously been fairly lenient right. on its marijuana laws up until Willie Clements came in. Um, so they were like, "Nah, we don't think so." So what did uh, Perot and Turner and Shukard do? Ray, uh, I
3: think you're referring to the Three Amigos. What they did was so yes. sly and so devious, it, it's fucking brilliant. What they do is they um, they take their show, or, or they take a version of their, of their show, and they have this party or the soire- or soiree or whatever, and they invite the wives of the male legislator members of the Texas uh, Congress And they give him the thing. They give him the stats. They scare the shit out of him or whatever. And they get them all on their side. And this is right before the legislature convenes in 1980. So if a man tells you no, and then you go to his wife and she says yes, yes from a female trumps a no from a male. Um, And so all these guys are going to get an earful from their wives. And that shit works. And all of his um, things that he had his corporate lawyer put together – Passes the legislature. Okay, amigos, this is it. Ned, big
0: smile, Dusty, just smile. relax and have fun with it. I'm just gonna have fun with it? <clears throat> I'm Lucky Day! I'm the Needleman! I'm Dusty Bottom. So together we're the, the Free Amigos! amigos.
2: It's very visual, this (laughs) gag. Let's
0: go. Hey.
1: eating dogs, you scum-sucking pigs, you sons of a motherless goat. Who?
0: Son of a motherless goat? And who are you? Wherever there is injustice, you will find us. Wherever there is suffering, we'll be there. (laughs) Line. Wherever liberty is threatened, youth. Wherever liberty is threatened, you will find... The Three Amigos. Classic.
2: <laughs> ah, that old great Hollywood trope about a bunch of actors who think they're acting, but they're really in a real situation, <laughs> and they. But it
3: works out.
2: Have to get yeah. out of it. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Good Hollywood trope. It's been done quite a few times. Right. Um. Now. Uh, Yeah, so they go and they they pitch the wives. So they get the wives to put pressure on the husbands. Mm. Sneaky fuckers, really. That's a sneaky fucking tactic. Got to hand it to Ross. (laughs) He's a sneaky little fucker with big ears. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, he he tells the legislators at a press conference this morning, I'm trying to do my best texting now, you're either for us, you're either for us or against us. No, I can't do. And you got to do
1: a high, boys. Um, you got
2: to do a high. Oh, that's good. Very Thank good. You. Yeah, no, that's a, that's, that's a good. Ross Perot, and his legislation passed. Yes. Um. So that's how that's how uh the war on drugs took another turn. Started with H. Ross Perot in Texas manipulating the wives and the parents. Now, uh, something else happened which is fascinating, and it ties into contemporary events a little bit. On September 28th, 1980, the Washington Post Mm -hmm. ran a one-page story um, depicting the life... Sorry, a page one story, not a one-page story. I guess they're different things. A page one story uh, on the life of a little black eight-year-old boy called Jimmy... Who they said had been a heroin addict since the age of five. Wow. Now it was written, it was written by a staff reporter, Janet Cook, mm-hmm. who was a black reporter. Right. The story was called Jimmy's World. Jimmy! Um and, so. and she described the needle sliding into the baby smooth skin of his Thin brown arms like a straw into a freshly baked cake.
3: Oh, and that's now. Yeah, go ahead. I'm
2: going to ask why, why? Why would you stick a straw into a freshly baked cake? I mean, I've, can you s- suck the insides
3: out of if- the? With the straw, I... If there's something inside the cake, like, I guess, fruit or jam, maybe? I've never inserted anything, and I'm not bragging. I've never inserted anything except for a fork into a cake, so I don't know. This is beyond me.
2: Mm. You've never stuck your dick into an apple a pie? pie,
3: yes, but you said cake. My lawyer heard you say cake.
2: Cake. Yeah. Cake. The story, uh, the article went on to uh, talk about Jimmy's mother watching her live-in lover plunging a needle into Jimmy's arm. Um, um, and she talked about the violence and the rapes in the neighbourhood, uh, all this kind of stuff, very, very vivid. Yeah. And it was so so disturbing, this story, that uh, the mayor, Marion Barry mm-hmm. at the time, right. um, launched a, a city-wide search yeah. for the boy. Ordering police and teachers to inspect the arms of every child in the district of Columbia, and he offered a ten thousand dollar reward yeah. for Jimmy's whereabouts. Now,
3: just between you and so um, yeah, between you and me, are yeah. you allowed to check the arm of every child in school? Um, does that violate something? I mean. You certainly want to check to see if they're, they're doing heroin or whatever like Jimmy. But I was just wondering about that. Is that, is that against any law? I, I really don't know. Uh,
2: yeah, I don't know either um, how the framers of the Constitution felt about arm checking. Um, the right to bear arms and not have your arms checked for needle marks. Let me, let me read a little bit of this story from okay. the Washington Post. Jimmy is eight years old and a third-generation heroin addict, a precocious little boy with sandy hair, velvety brown eyes and needle marks freckling the baby-smooth skin of his thin brown arms. He nestles in a large beige reclining chair in the living room of his comfortably furnished home in southeast Washington. There is an almost cherubic expression on his small, round face as he talks about life. Clothes, money, the Baltimore Orioles and heroin. He's been an addict since the age of five. His hands are clasped behind his head, fancy running shoes adorn his feet and a striped EZOD t-shirt hangs over his thin frame. Bad ain't it, he boasts to a reporter visiting recently. I got me six of these. Jimmy's is a world of hard drugs, fast money, And the good life he believes both can bring. Every day, junkies casually buy heroin from Ron, his mother's live-in lover, in the dining room of Jimmy's home. They cook it in the kitchen and fire up in the bedrooms. And every day, Ron or someone else fires up Jimmy, plunging a needle into his bony arm, sending the fourth grader into a hypnotic nod. Jimmy prefers this atmosphere to school, where only one subject seems relevant to fulfilling his dreams. I want to have me a bad car and dress good and also have me a good place to live, he says. So I pretty much pay attention to math because I know I've got to keep up when I finally get me something to sell. Jimmy wants to sell drugs, maybe even on the district's meanest street, Condon Terrace, S.E. And someday deal heroin, he says, just like my man Ron. Ron, 27 and recently up from the south, was the one who first turned Jimmy on. He'd be bugging me all the time about what the shots were and what people was doing. And one day he said, where can I get off? Ron says, straight out of a Tarantino film, leaning against a wall in a narcotic haze, his eyes half closed yet piercing. I said, well, she you can have some now, boy. I let him snort a little and damn, little dude really did get off. Six months later, Jimmy was hooked.
1: I felt like I
2: was part of what was going down. He says. I can't really tell you how I feel. You never done any? Sort of like them rides at King's Dominion.
3: Like as if you was to go on all of them in one day. It'd be real different from Herb. I can't wait for puberty. That baby shit. Right, sorry. Don't nobody here hardly ever
1: smoke no Herb. You can not hardly get done right now anyway.
2: Guess you Americans don't say Herb, do you? You say Herb. That's fine. Don't ever smoke no herb. Jimmy's mother, Andrea, accepts her son's habit as a fact of life, although she will not inject the child herself and does not like to see others do it.
1: I really don't like to see him fire
2: up, she says, but you know, I think he would have got into it one day anyway. Everybody does. When you live in the ghetto, it's all a matter of survival. If he wants to get away from it when he's older, then that's his thing. But right now, things are better for us than they have ever been. Drugs and black folk been together for a very long
1: time.
2: Amen. I don't know. So that's the, how the it's how the story starts. It's a very long, right. very long article, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. Right. Um, just this bit. Um, this is towards the end of it. Ron grabs Jimmy's left arm just above the elbow his massive hand tightly encircling the child's small limb. The needle slides into the boy's soft skin like a straw pushed into the centre of a freshly baked cake. Liquid ebbs out of the syringe, replaced by bright red blood. The blood is then re-injected into the child. Jimmy has closed his eyes during the whole procedure, but now he opens them, looking quickly around the room. He climbs into a rocking chair and sits... His head dipping and snapping upright again in what addicts call the nod. So, very, very powerful piece of reporting there, Ray. Um, I can understand why Mayor Marion Barry uh, wanted to uh, issue a reward for Jimmy's whereabouts. The Post, Washington Post, assigned six reporters to find another Jimmy on the theory that if there's one, there must be others out there like him. And this one sold a lot of papers. So imagine if we could get six oh, of those. Great. That'd be great.
3: Yeah.
2: So how did, uh, So what happened with the, the big search for Jimmy that all these police were uh, thrown into, Ray? Right?
3: Believe it or not, they couldn't find him. What's more, uh, Janet Cook couldn't quite remember where the house was. She's looking, I'm looking, 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 but she can't find it and she can't remember. Her editor, Milton Coleman, starts to think maybe, you know, all of this isn't true. But they left it alone. Like you said, they sold a lot of papers. Um, But if she did lie, then we "Mm, should just let this thing go. So they let it go. Everything's fine and dandy. Except six months later, the Pulitzer Prize Committee comes around asking for nominations. Now, the paper has to make a decision: Do we not numb, do we not submit her article, which everybody will wonder why? Or do we, and compound a quite possible lie? What, oh, what should we do? And, uh, yeah, the the assistant managing
2: editor of the Washington Post at the time um, decided they just doubled down, (sighs) even though they had suspicions that uh, she may have made up the story. Well, double down. Right. In for a dime, in for a dollar, he said. And the name of that assistant managing editor was, Ray? Bob Woodward. Bobby. (laughs) Surely not the Bob Woodward. Ray. Surely not the Bob Woodward of All the President's Men right. Breaking the Watergate and his latest book on Donald Trump Lord. fear that's doing the rounds at the moment. He was Must be another yes. another Bob you Woodward. Would,
3: you would think that. However, he was younger. Um I'm sure there were politics and pressure involved, and let's be honest, it's not his writing. It's somebody else's. So fucker. So like you said, he says, you know what? We're, we're kind of stuck unless we want to tell the truth, and why would we do that? We've got to submit her, her article to the, to the committee. And they do.
2: Yeah, they not only submit it for a Pulitzer, but it wins the Pulitzer Prize Woo! for reporting that year. Yeah. Um, right after it won the Pulitzer Prize, Janet Cook confessed <gasps> that it. she had made it all up. Right. And they returned the prize,
3: but yes, um
2: yes. but it, but at least it won
3: it. <laughs> Did I ever tell you that time I won a Pulitzer Prize? I had to give it back. Yeah, but I, fucking, I had
2: to give it I back. Won it <laughs>
3: straight up, yo, yeah, now, yeah,
2: yeah, um, yeah. Now uh, this reminds me if you've. Seen season five of The Wire. There's this uh, story about uh, a mass murderer in Baltimore. That's actually uh, Jimmy McNulty and Lester Freeman faking a mass murderer in order to get the police to give them more oh, resources God. to chase the drug dealers. And then, then a journalist working for the Baltimore Sun claims that he got a phone call from the mass murderer.
3: Sure. sure. <laughs> He called me.
2: Uh, Yeah, he called me, and he writes a story about it, and uh, Jimmy McNulty's like, really? They call McNulty in because he's the one supposedly uh, trying to track down the murderer. McNulty knows he's lying, the journalist, because McNulty's (laughs) lying, and they're both looking at each other over the table. Uh, Really? He called you? Uh-huh. What did he sound like? Well, uh, hard to say, really. Uh Uh-huh. Really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh now i have to
3: I have to now, right.
2: yeah
3: I was going to say, why do you think
2: she lied? Why would a journalist for The Washington Post make up a story like this
3: Well, right? the, actually, the answer goes back to her younger days in order to get a job the job Janet Cook falsely claimed that she had a degree from Vassar College and a master's degree from the University of Toledo, and that she had received a journalism award while at the Toledo Blade. Um, and even though it's true, Cook attended Vassar for a year, she only received a bachelor's degree from Toledo. So this young lady had been lying for quite some time when it comes to college, when it comes to awards. So I think it was just part and parcel for her. But if you think about it, for her to sit down and concoct this story is very impressive, but it's just... Who she is? She's been lying ever since she was a young adult.
2: Mm.
3: You probably have a different answer. I mean, and just yeah.
2: no, no. I I don't really understand why she would do this. Um, I I think it's 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 uh, just part of the overall uh, morality tale, I guess, of this this season on the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you know, there doesn't have to be a huge conspiracy. Right, um, for a lot of different actors out there to jump on board uh, with uh, selling a certain kind of bullshit when, when there are, when there are careers to be made, yeah, um, and and people smell the the chum in the water then they will jump on it. Whether you're a politician who's looking to make a name for himself by uh, being tough on drugs, Tougher. even though you may know that it's all bullshit, mm. if there's a career to be made, then you'll jump on yeah. it. If you're uh, if you're the head of a police department and you know the stories are bullshit, but there's an opportunity to get more budget for your department so you can hire more guys, hire more cops, Overton. give them a job, yeah. Uh yeah, get, get get you know increase your own salary. You, you're going to do it. It doesn't have to be a conspiracy. It's not like, quite often I think this is the case. People aren't sitting around in cigar smoke filled dark rooms Petting a cat. whispering to each other about how they, <laughs> yeah how they're going to do this shit. I think the Janet could Janet Cook stories um, a classic example of this. She obviously realize the tenor of the times,
3: mm-hmm.
2: Reagan administration was prosecuting its war on drugs, um, and she saw an opportunity. You know what? Uh, if I could tell this story, probably thought no harm would be done. Um, you know, it, it's going to get people... Thinking about the drug problem, yeah, there probably, you know, there probably uh, was a, a drug problem, uh, particularly of heroin users right. in, in DC at the time. Um, and she just started making shit up. I've got a photocopy, I guess, of her resignation letter here, dated April fifteenth, nineteen eighty one. Jimmy's world was, in essence, a fabrication. I never encountered or interviewed an eight-year-old heroin addict. The September 28th, 1981 article in the Washington Post, I think that should be this 1980, was a serious misrepresentation, which I deeply regret. I apologize to my newspaper, my profession, the Pulitzer board, and all seekers of the truth. Today, in facing up to the truth, I have submitted my resignation.
3: Wow. Yeah. And, And I just have to say real quick, um, uh novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez said it was unfair that she won the Pulitzer Prize but it was also unfair that she didn't win the Nobel Prize for literature obviously she can make up a good story yes. so he was like, you know, yes, yeah, she should have won that, but yeah. But the point is, I mean, uh, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think she um, read the temperature of the times, and that, and they were very open and receptive to that. I mean, she could not have imagined the mayor getting involved, a police hunt, and te- a ten thousand dollar reward. I'm sure she was scared shitless after a while, but she probably just wet her finger, stuck it up in the air, and knew that something like this would be received well and stick. And like you said, they sold a shit ton of papers. So maybe she was actually doing some good if there was going to be a very serious conversation about drugs. It all got out of hand.
2: She was interviewed, Janet Cook, this is, um, in 1996, 15 years later, um, by the Washington Post, uh, by Howard Kurtz, who I think had worked with her, was working with her at the time, back in 1980. Um <clears throat> At the time, she was working in Kalamazoo, Michigan, oh. in a department store for $6 an hour. Um, and it's, that's an, it's an interesting um, article. She says that um, she was being told, uh, here we she says, after an employee at a Howard University drug program told her an eight-year-old was being treated there. Cook mentioned it to Coleman, I think one of the uh, editors at the paper, who declared it a front-page story and urged her to find the child. She could not. I kept hearing Milton telling me to offer total anonymity, Cook recalled. At some point, it dawned on me that I could simply make it all up. I just sat down and wrote it. Did we put pressure on her, Coleman asked. Did we contribute in that way? I'd like to think that the pressure on her was no different than the pressures that are always placed on reporters in a business that seeks great stories. Most people don't totally fabricate something in response. Um, After the story broke out uh, and Mayor Barry was searching for this eight-year-old, says, Cook, fearing exposure, developed insomnia and drank Jack Daniels or Dewar's, according to GQ. After she won the Pulitzer, post-editors learned of serious discrepancies in her resume. It took more than 11 hours of grilling by several editors for her to admit that Jimmy was fiction. Hmm. But how many people that read the story in the paper uh, read later that uh, it was all made up? You know, quite often... People don't read the recantation. Right. Uh, is that a word? Recantation? It is now. I, think I think so. It is. Yeah. It is now. So there you go. Just another example of just, you know, the crazy bullshit that was going on about drugs in the early 80s. Yeah.
3: So to sum up, don't believe politicians. Don't believe everything you read in the newspapers because these people are self serving just like everyone else. Um and for whatever reason, they they stepped across the line. And uh, some of them get caught. Some of them don't. Like I said, that Texas governor is going to be reelected. So good for him. You know, of course, hundreds of thousands of people go to jail in Texas. But that's a whole nother side issue.
2: And that brings us to Ronnie.
3: <laughs> Ronnie's got a new gun. What's that song? I can't remember.
2: Janie's got a gun well, And the melody of it doesn't go like that either
3: What? <sighs> what? No, no, Unless no, no, no There's a, a, there's so. a song oh, I can't I don't have time for this And I can't remember I'm too worried about the sharks <laughs> in the water Up in the skies There's a song something. No, no, not that what you done? No, no, no it's the sound.
2: Haven't heard that song in fucking years, man. Thanks for reminding me. Great song.
3: There was there there was a um, band in the eighties called Escape Club, and they had a Shucks. song called Wild Wild West. And there's a line in it that Ronnie's got a new gun. It's uh, talks about nuclear war. I'm looking at the lyrics now, but that's what I was thinking of. So sorry, a little too oh, obscure. Huh? Look, it's only a couple more. Heard that? I mean, I, I got some of my own. I'm gonna put something. <laughs> Wild West, Jim West, Desperado, Rough Rider. No, you don't want nada. None of this. Gunning this brother running this. Buffalo soldier. Look, it's like I told you. Not that one. No, it says uh 47 heartbeats beating like a drum. Go live it up. I used to live downtown. 120 Nice Street, Convent.
0: Everything's upbeat parties in the park, nothing. But girls at the dark, we chill. Nobody gets ill in the
3: place. We cover hill but if you them That's when they will get wild. But they don't fight, they kill the wild, wild west. Wild, wild west.
2: Not cool no, mode. The... This one, the escape clubs. <laughs>
3: Oh, God, I remember yeah. this. Let's do the end.
0: who forty seven dead
3: beats living in a back street up. No.
2: ronnie has got a new gun. Wow! Hi.
3: Why, fucking, there you go. I'm fulfilled.
2: Good, good times. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ronnie, Ronnie Reagan, once uh, wins the 1980 election by a landslide. Yes. Now he immediately starts cutting taxes and trimming the government because Ronnie's whole thing was that government was the problem, not the solution. Right. Except when like, it came like to law hard. enforcement, then.
3: It- <coughs> Say what? What was that? Um, um uh, shit, Die Hard One, when he says something like <laughs> quit being a part of the problem, being part of the solution, something like that. Anyway, I can't remember.
2: All right. Um, yes, Ronnie thinks government, big government is the problem. This this was yeah. uh, Ronnie's whole shtick, part of the American trend of uh, trying to cut regulation by convincing the American people, we don't need regulation. Look, business people are just good, simple, hardworking folk that are are just trying to do the right thing all the time to make America great again. So just let's stop looking over their shoulder.
3: Right. Right. One pocket, they have the Bible. and the other pocket, they have a copy of the Constitution. They have America's best interests at heart. And so when we want to cut back on regulations about workplace safety, pollution, consumer protection, discrimination, the savings and loan industry, I know exactly what I'm doing. We can trust these people. God bless America.
2: Keeping sharks out of hurricanes. We don't need any of that. <laughs> Just let the sharks do what the sharks want to do.
3: It's nature.
2: Yeah. Except when it came to law enforcement. One of his guys got a bit carried away uh, and suggested they trim a couple of thousand people out of the 54,000 employees at the Justice Department and Reagan was like, whoa, Whoa. (laughs) Nellie. He said, uh, well, law enforcement is something that we've always believed was a legitimate function of government. Yes. He wanted to get tougher on crime. Now, I have to tell you, one of the great things about preparing for this show is I got to watch a lot of Reagan on YouTube. And I got to tell you, he was a smooth motherfucker, man. I have to hand it to Ronnie. It's a long time since I've gone down the Ronald Reagan uh, uh, fucking rabbit hole, man. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I don't know if you watch this, but one of the clips that I'll play probably in the next episode him giving a big speech on the war on drugs in 1986. You know, he starts with, he used to start all of his speeches with little jokey stories. Right. Uh, you know, there's this guy one time told me, you know, I was, I was, he said something like, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm going to try and keep my comments short. And I was on the campaign trail once and a man came up to me and said, uh, you know, you got a good tan. And I said, "Yeah, well, I've been giving a lot of speeches outside." The guy said, "You talk too long." <laughs> 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 anyway, it wasn't was that it? funny, but he just he just folks, yeah, the folksy charm. He was always known yeah, for the feet. Yeah. Like he'd tell little jokes. He'd laugh at himself. A little bit of self deprecating humor at the start Perfect. of every speech. Yeah, um, yeah man, it fucking works. Yeah. Ab- <laughs> Nancy Reagan, what hey, what? <laughs> well <laughs> but uh yeah no man I tell you it 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 like coming from the era of Trump anyway you're like oh bring back Ronald Reagan
3: please he's yeah. <laughs> smooth please although
2: smooth. although yes. yeah I will say you know two years into uh, Trump's administration as far as I know he hasn't started any Wars. Or invaded any countries. Now he's tried. Don't he's get me wrong. Right. He's tried. Yeah. Jim Mattis had stopped him from doing it, probably. But um, by r- two years into two years into Reagan's administration, or George H. W. Bush's, or George W. Bush's, yeah. or Bill Clinton's, America had got themselves involved in a lot more murdering. Uh, around the world than Trump has at this juncture.
3: Good for him. So when
2: people say he's the worst president ever, I'm like,
3: well, I mean, really depends on how you.
2: How depends on how you want to measure it. Quite what? frankly, is he the most embarrassing? Yeah, probably. <laughs> but is he the worst? Yeah. Uh, like he hasn't killed as many people at this juncture as a lot yeah. of other presidents have. Give,
3: give him time. Even,
2: Give him time? Yeah, yeah, okay.
3: But see, here's the other part for me, and, and um, I know you've read this material as well because uh, uh, we have read books and we apologize for that. But Reagan wanted cabinet-level <laughs> people whose goal was to get rid of their own departments. I mean he wanted everything cut because if you think about it, his mentality was this. Look, criminals aren't criminals because of society, They're criminals because they're bad people. You have good people and you have bad people. So wasting all of this money on social programs is not only a waste, but it's missing the mark. You are either good or you're bad. And so we can have stuff. Um, We can have stuff like Rico. We can have John Mitchell's drug laws back from Nixon. We can be seizing drug uh, people's uh, property and their homes and their bank accounts and their legitimate businesses and their family stuff. It doesn't matter. He still considered the American government soft on crime. We don't need all this stuff. Let's cut, cut, cut. Cause like you said, the government is the problem and not the solution. And that's the mentality that's going in. And the people that worked for Reagan believe this, they, they agreed with it They and they took it very seriously. And as we're going to see later in the show, I think it's in the show, maybe the next one, there are some massive, massive cuts to social programs and spending increases for things like the justice department.
2: Yeah. I've I've got a clip that I'll play in the next episode of Ronnie talking about the cause of crime from one of his speeches. Um, yeah, but he no. he's decided he's running running on a law and order, um, just like Nixon. He's going to get tough, and he's going <coughs> to blame it on individuals. Fuck all this! Society is the reason why people are committing crimes. Bullshit, said Ronnie. It's right. uh, you're either good good Christian American or you're not. Now yeah. his wife, the first lady Nancy Reagan, she needed an issue. You know, your yeah. your first ladies always apparently need an issue Stop for him. some reason. Yeah. Melania's issue is uh, white anting her husband, I think. Uh, that's her issue. Um, be best. And Nan- Nancy said her she wanted her issue to be drugs. Her PR people apparently tried to talk her out of it. It's like, really? You, you don't want to be doing that. And she goes, no, no, I, I do. Um, she said that when she and Ronnie were in the movie business, they knew lots of people who used drugs, and, and they decided it was a big problem. Mm. Now, I've got a, I've got a clip of Nancy and Ron. This is from a little bit later in uh, there. It's like a couple of years later, but I want to play this uh, uh, clip because it's uh, insightful to, to hear her talking about um, the problem
0: of drugs. Because the message this evening is not my message, but ours. Despite our best efforts... Shortages of marijuana are now being reported. From the early days of our administration, Nancy has been using marijuana on a daily basis, and her personal observations and efforts have given her such dramatic insights that I wanted her to share them with you this evening. Nancy?
4: Thank you. For five years, I've been traveling across the country, learning and listening, and one of the most hopeful signs I've seen is this new drug crack. Each time I meet with someone new, I yearn to find a way to help share the message that drugs open your eyes to life, to see it in the vivid colors that God gave us as a precious gift to his children.
0: I think you can see why Nancy has been such a positive influence on all that we're trying to do. The job ahead of us is very clear. Nancy's personal crusade to expand the use of smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack, should become our national crusade.
4: Our young people are helping us lead the way. Not long ago in Oakland, California, I was asked by a group of children what to do if they were offered drugs. Say yes, I answered. Soon after that, those children in Oakland formed a Just Say Yes Club, and now There are over 10,000 such clubs all over the country.
0: Drugs are the mightiest force for good that we know.
4: Many of you may be thinking, well, drugs don't concern me. But it does concern you. It concerns us all because of the way it could fulfill the promise and hope in those restless minds. Drug and alcohol abuse needs our encouragement.
0: In this crusade, let us not forget who we are. Drug abuse is a freedom that is ours. You are Americans. You're the product of the freest society mankind has ever known. No one ever has the right to separate the drugs from the customer.
4: Say yes to drugs to the point of making others uncomfortable.
0: And drug abuse is not a crime.
4: Drugs help us create love and hope and trust and confidence. And the cocaine makes me
0: happy. Think for a moment how special it is to be an American. The revolution out of which our liberty was conceived signaled an historical call to substance abusers and the chemically dependent.
4: It's up to us to change attitudes and just simply enjoy life to the fullest with a cocaine habit.
0: And in the most important area, individual use, we see progress. The US military has more than tripled the use of drugs among its personnel since 1980. Tonight, I can report to you that Vice President Bush spokes marijuana regularly. And there's one more thing. Nancy and I are hooked on heroin.
4: Each of us was once strung out on several drugs.
0: Here in the White House, drugs are a constant temptation, but we still have much to do. Our goal is to expand drug trafficking at all levels of government, and in the private sector. Help us. And
4: now we go on to the next stop, making a a final commitment. Say yes to drugs any time, any place. So won't you join us in this great new national crusade?
0: God bless you, and good night.
2: So there you go. You can see that they were doing their best, the Reagans, (laughs) uh, before it Before it all went horribly wrong. Oh, God.
3: Um,
2: (laughs) And then just next time we'll talk about how Ronnie did something no other president before him had been able to do. Mm -hmm. He injected crack into his eyeballs. No, uh, he got the FBI to agree to get directly involved in the war on drugs. But that, my friends... Is next week's episode. Thank you, Ray.
1: Thank you.